Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up. If your dad went to a park where he uh, was playing and like he was friends with your friend's dad, they're going to talk about the times that they had at the park. Then you're going to have good times and you're going to tell your children they're going to have good times. That's how you build. How can sports facilities drive social, economic and aesthetic development in our cities? On the show this week, we look at how the humble basketball court can act as a hub for the community. We also visit Las Vegas to see how Sin City is becoming known as a sporting centre in the United States. Plus, we explore how stadium design is changing to become more inclusive as interest in women's sports grows. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. First up today, we look at how basketball courts can be a catalyst for driving neighbourhood development and also social change. Last summer, the British basketball team London Lions partnered with estate developer Mount Anvil to design, plan and build a series of courts across housing estates in the capital. Created with the community in mind, the idea was to use the sport as a way of bringing locals together and incentivise young people to be more active and social with one another. To find out more, I was joined earlier by Tom Beardmore, who's the marketing director at Mount Anvil, and also by Bradley Caboza, one of the basketball players at London Lions, who, having grown up on a London housing estate, knows just how impactful the sport can be in changing the trajectory of someone's life. We know that everybody deserves quality housing, right? Everyone across London. Londoners deserve brilliant places to live and that extends to you know the quality of the homes that we're providing for our partners and that we're building but then also the spaces that we're responsible for curating as well. So yeah we take a real long-term view on this. We'll be you know, there for the long term alongside our the partners that we're working with and we're interested in what the communities look like in 30, 40, 50 years down the line not just the you know the immediacy after of when one of our homes are built or when one of our buildings have gone up. Now, before we bring in Bradley, how come in this process you settled on on sport and on basketball as something that could play a significant role? We're always looking to work and collaborate with people that care just as much about the long term as we do. So that has tended to be uh, housing associations with local authorities. But in this occasion, the London Lions, who we've got so much in common with both all about London. Our missions are totally aligned in that we care about the community and we care about the places that we leave behind. So we found the London Lions because ultimately the work that's been done from the Lions Foundation, and that is geared up around engaging young people through basketball to help increase kind of cohesion, to kind of increase that community sense that exists within the inner cities, communities in London, and the ways in which the Lions are getting young people engaged through basketball has been something that we've you know loved working with and we've seen a real real uptick and a real help in engagement amongst young people we'll unpack the project in a moment just tell us whereabouts in london it is though nice no, so we're doing some work up in islington and on a state called barnsbury up there and we're also doing some work on the isle of dogs with our partners riverside there we've got a load more stuff in the pipeline but they're the two that are most immediately we're focused on at the moment well bradley let's bring you in first of all can you just tell us a little bit about the lions how big is the game in communities across London? I feel like it's grown a lot. You know, you've seen on social media more. People have always been playing it, to be honest. Like, I've always been around it from, like, the ages of, like, 13, 14. So in my mind, you know, it's always been around. But for the people that maybe, 
you know, play other sports or just, you know, work in a different environment, I feel like they're more exposed to it now. Like, it might just pop up on their screen or they might hear about a Lions game or hear about a game that's being played. So I feel like it's definitely grown a lot since I've been young and uh, hopefully it just continues to grow more. And tell me, what is it about the game that appeals to you? Because I guess one of the reasons we're talking about this here today is, you know, that it seems sport for everybody can be a way of making friends, of thinking about more than yourself, of rising to big ideals. What drew you into the sport and made you think this was for you? I feel like me, just I'm really competitive. (laughs) So, like, I want to win. I don't like losing. I want to win everything. So, and the type of friends that I have were all, like, competitive. So, like, just being in an environment where I have to compete all the time, I feel like that's good for you as a person. It's good for you when you grow up, like, in life. You know what I'm trying to say? It doesn't have to be just sports. It can be, you know, trying to be a CEO of a company or, you know, you're always trying to climb a ladder and you're always going to have to have conflict and compete against someone for a job that you want. So it's like, I feel like these little games that we play that mean so much when we're younger helps us, like, when we're older, but we don't really know it yet. I know that one of the discussions about the value of sports spaces is, you know, that... In many parts of London, there is little, it feels, for young people to do, little, few opportunities to bring people together in the, this team environment. Do you think for the neighbourhoods you know that this can make the difference between a life that's successful and easy and a life that can go a little bit off the rails? Yeah, 100%. If you're able to like build something, especially in this generation where like everything's to do with technology, you understand that like, you want your kids to be outside, you want them, you know, to feel fresh air, like not just be at home with the windows closed, you know, and with your headphones on playing games, which is also like all right, but you want them to be outside, you want them to learn social skills, to learn how to talk to someone, you know, interact with people, go through that like, awkwardness at a young age, you know, because if, when you're older, if you're awkward, people don't have time to be like, oh, well, let's just leave this man because he's awkward, you know what I'm saying? When you're younger, it's a bit different. They'll teach you, they'll make it, like, it's okay, like, you can speak with him, he's not going to hurt you or he's yeah, yeah. not against you. When you're older, they don't really have time for that. They're just going to go with the person that knows how to articulate himself, knows how to speak with someone. Also, for me, it's like culture. No matter what you do, like you can have all the money, you can have whatever. Like The key thing in what makes a community stay for a long time, culture, because you can't replace it. If your dad went to a park where he uh, was playing and like he was friends with your friend's dad, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Like, it goes on and on and on. They're going to talk about the times that they had at the park. Then you're going to have good times. Then you're going to tell your children they're going to have good times. That's how you build. So if you provide good sports facilities, it becomes generational with almost yeah. like no effort. Suddenly it gets passed on. Just tell me, Tom, when you begin to go out to meet people in communities, it's great to meet the councillor and the the, <laughs> the senior people of the, who represent the community. But how important is it to also engage with a person who is 13, 14 years old to begin to hear what they want as well? It's huge. It's right at the heart of what we're trying to do. I was there actually at one of the first sessions that we held down at Barnsbury in the community centre there. And we probably had maybe 15 to 20 young people up to the age of 15, 16 or so. It was ran by the Lions from the coaches there. And what we were trying to do is ultimately create something together with the local community that it felt like it was their own or it is their own and something that will be their own and will be continued to be used in the best way for like generations as Bradley was saying to come we were running a design process where we were asking what do you want the court to look like and they had to run to one corner of the court for like one color they had to run to a different one so it's this kind of co-design in a slightly different sense that just had 
community and young people right at the very heart of it. And just tell me with the Lions, are you identifying places in London together that need a core and that need help? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So there's two main parts to our partnership, I think. One, to the point you're alluding to, it's the quite real. We are providing courts. We're starting off in Barnsbury and we want to keep doing that across the capital. The second part of our partnership is really geared at the softer skills. It's the engagement. We recognise that the Lions are experts. Like ourselves, we spent a long time trying to figure out what are the ways in which we can best engage young people, engage the residents, engage the community. And that's the ton of expertise that comes from the Lions through basketball and we have similar programs in other sports but yeah this one's really exciting and just tell me when the teenagers involved in this process began to select the things what did they want from a basketball court in a, in a city setting well the one part that the lions brought which was really well received is this idea of like if you can't see it you can't be it so they have a focus on world-class design you know when i talked to some of the coaching staff jason and the, and the rest of the team who came down to run those sessions they want the court at Barnsbury to feel like an NBA style court you know we've got the full bleachers we've got the full design this really is kind of no expense spared on the look and feel the aesthetic to create just a brilliant environment for young people to be playing and to be using so there were some pretty wacky designs in there it's pretty uh, it's pretty out there but that's the benefit of having this decided by the people who are going to be using it the most. And Bradley, tell me, when you you think about the courts that you like to play on and the places that you like to play sport, what are the fundamentals? What does Mount Anvil have to think about when they start making courts for younger people? Because we've heard that they need to be colourful, they shouldn't be separate from the community. You know, If there's a graffiti artist that can work there and break down some barriers, those things are important as well. What do you think they should be thinking about when making a facility that young people will actually want to use? You know, the colours and all of that stuff is... All nice, it's just like all stick, but just access will be something. I don't know if that's in their control, but that is something that will be the most important thing. If they have a lot of access, like the kids have access, then they can go when they want, wherever time, with their friends, and that's when they're going to create memories. And when you create memories, that's when, like, you know, you don't forget things. And uh, you have a situation where you're like, you know, this court now, hey, I had a lot of good times there, and it's like people want to be involved in that. People want to see where your good times were. You know what I'm trying to say? Like anyone that's your fan or anyone that's uh, interested in your life, your journey, they're going to see that. What a call to arms that is. That this is you know, what we need to be thinking about in our cities. You know that I think it's amazing when Bradley talks about building memories and about this notion of generational impact that you know if you have a good time now you will pass this on to your kids and it will become something that effortlessly kind of rolls on what's the motivation for you to keep going and what's the plans i get my motivation so easily when i hear the stories of you know some of the guys who i work with margaret one of my colleagues down on the isle of dogs there's a small group there eight to twelve year old girls who had never been involved in basketball and it was through this partnership with the lions that she took this small group down to a game they loved it. They've massive Lions fans now, and we've supported their journey to get into the sport. You know, we've got them access to a space, exactly Bradley saying, number one challenge, you know, access first and foremost, and then get on from that world class design and all that cool stuff. But right at the very heart of it, that was this small group who have gotten into the sport. It's building up their social skills, their confidence buildings. You know, they've got club sessions that are you know, half and half, half geared at the sporting side of it and half geared up at the kind of the wider social outcomes that we're really trying to achieve ultimately in the communities that we're working in. So that's the motivation here in the stories. We want more of those stories. We want to keep working with people who care about the long term and we want to open up some more courts with the Lions to get some more games going, see some more good stories. (laughs) 
Tom Beardmore from Mount Anvil and Bradley Caboza of the London Lions there. Thank you both for joining us on The Urbanist. Proud sports supporters in cities around the United States must be a nervous bunch because sports franchises across all of the major codes have a history of deserting their hometowns. One of the most famous franchises in the world, the Los Angeles Lakers, was actually originally from Minnesota. Or take the Oakland Raiders football franchise, who moved down the west coast to Los Angeles, only to return back to Oakland years later, before shifting again, this time out of state, to Las Vegas. Las Vegas has indeed been gobbling up franchises in the past few years. This month, the city will play host to the biggest one-day sporting event in the world, the Super Bowl. The National Football League final is the latest in a slew of victories that have turned the city in the Nevada desert into a sought-after sports destination. And, as correspondent H.J. Mai explains, there's more to come. But all the Knights start to celebrate on their bench. When the Vegas Golden Knights won the Stanley Cup last year, it was the first time that the city of Las Vegas won a championship in any of America's four major sports leagues. The silver trophy to the Golden Knights! The National Hockey League team is also what started this ongoing trend of sports franchises expanding or relocating to the city. In 2016, the NHL became the first league to take the gamble and awarded an expansion team to the city. Here's NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman announcing the decision. Uh, The Board of Governors approved the plan of expansion that will bring a National Hockey League franchise to Las Vegas beginning with the 2017-18 season. The decision by the NHL was a bold one. For years, the major U.S. sports leagues have shied away from expanding or moving teams to the city, says Steve Hill, CEO of the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. Two reasons. One is, you know, Las Vegas is not all that big. It's still a relatively small city, you know, from a regional sports standpoint. But also, the leagues were worried about the influence that gambling could have on the integrity of the sport. The last seven years, however, have coincided with drastic changes on both fronts. Let's take it step by step. First, the arrival of the Golden Knights, with the start of the 2017-2018 NHL season. Hockey in the desert seems like a crazy idea at first. And the NHL's initial attempt to put a team in the desert in Phoenix, Arizona, is still a work in progress. But Las Vegas is very different than almost any other place. We're so unique and different. It's because we are attracting tourists, and those tourists are coming to take part in these sporting events. They look at it as yet another reason to come to Vegas, to spend money on hotels, to eat, to go to other entertainment. So it's just another lever in our overall economy that is growing significantly. That's Nancy Lowe. She's the co-director of the Sports Innovation Institute at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Lowe says the Golden Knights' arrival and initial success reaching the finals in their first year, gave people something to rally behind in the aftermath of a devastating tragedy. We had one of the worst mass shootings in the history of the United States, and the silver lining in that was the community came together in a way that it had not before. On October 1st, 2017, a gunman opened fire on a crowd of people attending the Route 91 Harvest Festival, killing 58 people and wounding hundreds of others. The Golden Knights were just tremendous in how they brought the community together. And the identity of the city became embedded and became one in a lot of ways. The success of the Golden Knights during their first year has convinced doubters that professional sports franchises can find a home in Sin City. 
So, not unexpectedly, the team soon got company. In 2018, the city welcomed its next professional sports team, a WNBA franchise, the Las Vegas Aces. The team relocated from San Antonio, Texas, and within a few years turned Vegas into a mecca for women's basketball. And then in 2020, the NFL, the top dog of US sports, planted its flag in Las Vegas. NFL owners approved the move of the Oakland Raiders three years before in 2017. Breaking news out of Phoenix, Arizona, NFL owners have approved the deal to move the Oakland Raiders to Las Vegas. The That's NFL is placing a big NFL bet on the country's most famous gambling mecca. The headline in this morning. The relocation of the storied football franchise was the final validation for the city as a major sports hub. Accelerating all those expansions and relocations was also a shift in the regulatory landscape. A U.S. Supreme Court ruling today has opened the door to a dramatic expansion of legal sports betting. The landmark 2018 decision to overturn a federal ban on sports betting eliminated the last lingering reservations that some sports leagues had about Las Vegas and its reputation as a premier gambling destination, says Lowe. When the owners were relieved of this sense of, you know, hey, sport betting is going to be everywhere. And the reality is Las Vegas is the one place in this country where it's regulated, very, very well regulated. We know what we're doing. That just changed everything, right? So then all of a sudden we have an NFL franchise coming. We're building a stadium for this NFL franchise. But said stadium, or more precisely the financing of said stadium, received extensive public scrutiny. That's because of the $2 billion for the new football temple, $750 million came in the form of public funds, which to this day remains the largest public contribution for a sports stadium in the US. Using public money to build a facility for a team owned by a billionaire unsurprisingly, doesn't sit well with many people. Critics argue that those funds should rather be spent on critical needs, such as education, housing or police services. Nancy Lowe, who co-authored the recent report on the rise of Las Vegas as a sports destination, says in the case of the Raiders Stadium, the use of taxpayer funds might turn out to be a good investment. Uh, there's no question that that's always controversial and, and for good reason. But having said that, you know, our report showed that sporting events in Las Vegas generated $1.845 billion in direct output from out-of-town visitors in the fiscal year 2022. Other conservative forecasts, when you think about Las Vegas and how much employment has grown, we have shown that it's going to grow by anywhere from 11 to, you know, 12 or 13 percent with permanent jobs um, between now and 2030. And that is the kind of thing that merits tax investment. With an economy based on tourism, increasing the number of visitors is the primary goal of the city's visitors' authority. And using sports in their marketing campaign has already paid dividends, says CEO Steve Hill. Throughout our history, about 75% of the population loves Las Vegas and is open to thinking about coming to Las Vegas. And about 25% has not been. Don't listen to our messaging, aren't interested in thinking about coming, and just kind of closed off. Professional sports in particular has caused some of that 25% to rethink Las Vegas. Hill says the growth of pro sports in the city has already contributed to a drop in the number of people who never even considered visiting the city. Somebody who's a fan of the you know Baltimore Ravens and wants to see them on a road game, it's like, well, yeah, maybe I'll go to Las Vegas and see them play the Raiders and spend a few days there and see what Las Vegas is. The Visitors' Authority has already started targeting specific markets based on when a local team plays an away game in Vegas. And Formula One goes the return of Formula One last November has so far been the biggest event from a marketing perspective, says Hill. In a typical year, our marketing efforts are going to create, I don't know, six, seven, eight billion impressions around the world. 
the Formula One race was 46.8 billion impressions about Las Vegas in Formula One. <laughs> it's just dwarfed everything else we do. The Super Bowl is expected to provide a similar reach, but that doesn't mean Las Vegas is done. Late last year, Major League Baseball approved the relocation of the Oakland A's. The team is expected to start playing in a brand new ballpark on the Vegas Strip starting in 2028. And as Mayor Carolyn Goodman explains, the city is also trying to lend NBA and MLS franchises. With roughly 2.3 million people, the Las Vegas metro area is among the top 30 in the country. And while tourism remains king in Las Vegas, the city's unprecedented growth as a sports destination is set to continue. A new high-speed rail line linking the city to Southern California is set to open in time for the 2028 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Who knows, we might be part of the Olympics in 2028. For Monocle, I'm H.G. Mike. Large sporting facilities have long been built with male teams and audiences in mind. But professional women's sports have seen a massive uptick in public interest in recent years. And as such, designers are starting to plan better stadiums for women and girls to both play and spectate in. Maria Nutston Hall is a principal at Populous, an architecture firm that specialises in stadiums, arenas and event spaces. Last year, Populous completed work on the female-focused Victoria State Football Centre, home of the Matildas, the Australian women's soccer team. Maria recently spoke with Monocle's Carlotta Ribello, and they began their conversation by discussing the state of women's sports today and how stadium design has had an impact. At the moment, we're seeing an extreme growth trajectory in women's sport, and traditionally, stadiums has been designed for male athletes and with a predominantly male attendance. And of course, that's something that we are seeing now is changing more and more. It's not always the easiest to change because these buildings are uh, large structures. It's something that uh, needs to be retrofitted into them. But in many of our new projects, it's something we need to take into consideration a long time ago. So Populous have worked with this for several years now, where we're designing for equitable facilities. And it's not just seeing females coming into the picture, but a more diverse spectator range. So it's not the traditional all-male audience anymore. We are seeing families going for football games. We're seeing people from different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. And that is changing how we're designing those buildings and how we're looking at the experience of the actual football game itself as well. Well, let's delve into then some of the practical examples here. How can you incorporate some of these solutions then in the built environment? What are some of the design considerations that you've had to make in order to make these places more inclusive for all? So firstly, if we look at the athletes that are using these buildings for their job and the purpose they're doing, we're looking at creating facilities that are equal for men and women in these buildings. Sometimes they are shared, sometimes they have individual dedicated spaces, but in both instances, they need to cater for how those teams are using them. So it could be small amendments to, you know, if they're shared facilities, you're having enclosed toilets rather than urinals that's traditionally been built into these buildings and closed off showers, etc. 
But it's also then to cater for a staff and administration categories that are actually becoming more and more equal between female and male. Traditionally, almost all athletes and elite facilities have been designed for male only. So this is important. Now, it's not just about the athletes in the building, but it's also the visitors that come to this building. And when we're looking at the demographic and how that's changing, something we need to consider is, of course, the different and the varying events we have in the buildings. So one event can be very different to another, and therefore the buildings need to be extremely flexible so that they can cater for an attendance with very different demographics from time to time. Uh, so we're looking at, in then in practice, things again that can be switched from gender-neutral facilities to then be gendered at times when they need to be, but also experiences that cater for different needs and what people enjoy doing. And that can be a more enhanced food offer, for example. So just making sure that the experience when you come to our buildings are diverse and cater for those different people that are visiting is important. Now, you mentioned there how in the majority of cases, stadiums are designed with men, both as in the athletes and as attendees in mind. And the work that you've done, particularly at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium to adapt that, to be more inclusive, but also you now have completed work, populist completed work on the female-focused Victorian State Football Centre in Australia, the home and permanent training centre for the Australian women's football team. I want I wonder how in that project then did you have to approach this side of inclusivity because you were just describing there the considerations you have to make when it's a shared environment. But in this case, you knew exactly who the athletes were going to be. So is it almost like a reverse? Tell me more about that project. It is, but it's inclusivity on other aspects as well because it's bringing the community in. So it's also about designing for a younger group of teams coming together with the elite teams, which is quite exciting in that project, that it actually brings in the grassroots and bringing them together with the elite team, whether that in this case it's female, but it's essentially the same if it was a male team. Now, of course, it's highly bespoke for the Matildas themselves, but that in itself doesn't necessarily mean that it's that female focus as such. It's designed for the women's team, but all the facilities are of the high quality that you normally would see in a men's training center. And that's what's exciting because these opportunities have never been given to female teams before. So it's not necessarily about the physical changes of this is a, a female room or anything. It's about creating the opportunities and the high quality facilities for them. That means that they can also go away and perform better in the job that they're doing as football players. I was going to ask about that. Can then these design considerations change the performance of the athletes and actually get citizens to engage more with the sports regardless of gender? Absolutely. And that's what I think is very successful in that project, that firstly, it does bring in and when the Matildas are not there, the facilities are used by the junior teams all the way up to their elite teams. So they are essentially being able to use very high quality facilities. And it's shown in many studies that the better facilities you're given uh, while you're training, the better performance teams are actually achieving. So that's a direct correlation there. And what we're seeing in the world now is that many of the female football players, they have a daily job as well as playing 
football. And that in itself just doesn't give you the same opportunities. So the more we can facilitate in these training facilities to make sure they can perhaps study while they're training or even do work while they're training, then we can help them grow in the game and in their job. You mentioned how, you know, some of your work was in adapting what had been built with men in mind to be shared. You've had this amazing work with, you know, building the home of the Matildas. Do you see a future where you'll start to be asked to adapt spaces that were designed with women in mind to be shared with men? Or because the design is inclusive from the get-go, that's already a consideration that you're making? Exactly that. I mean, we... When we design building now for the future, we're trying to have in mind to design for all. So it's inclusive buildings with flexibility that can secure a future that's diverse and changing. We see how these type of changes go fast now. So it's very difficult for large buildings like stadiums and arenas to have that change built into them. So we need to make sure that we can allow for flexibility for the future. Otherwise, we're just back to square one where we started in five years' time if there's a different use of the building. Maria Knutson-Hall there in conversation with Monocle's Carlotta Ribello. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. You can follow us on all good podcast platforms to get new episodes every week. And why not visit monocle.com to subscribe to Monocle magazine too, so you can stay up to date with regular reports on all things urbanism. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. I've been your host, Andrew Tuck. Goodbye, and thank you for listening, city lovers. City lovers.